Okay, so two more weeks, uh, Lord willing, left in Genesis, and then we've completed the book. We've gone through all of these things right from the creation, uh, the foundation of Scripture, of uh, this world, of our existence, seeing the fall of man, where it all went wrong, immediately seeing Satan's attempt to stop the promise of the Messiah uh, with uh, Cain's attempt to kill Abel. Satan, no doubt, using that as a, a way of trying to stop this uh, one that has already been prophesied that would come, uh, that would bruise his head. Um, and then that carrying on until the days of Noah, when by that time the whole world had corrupted itself. The Lord using the floods to purge this world of that wickedness. The world doesn't understand these things. Um, but the scripture is very clear that the flood itself was a work of grace, of God making a way, providing uh, a possible uh, route for the, the Messiah to come. Uh, and then, of course, we see after the, the flood um, leading to the Tower of Babel, man's attempt to try and build this one world government, something that we see going on in, in the days we're living in right now, um, this uh, rekindling of all of these ideas. Um, but again, God confounding man's plans. And then we see God start something incredible. From chapter 12 onwards, of course, with Abraham, uh, God calling this, this idol-worshipping Gentile, effectively, uh, out of that uh, land, out of the area of the Chaldees, uh, saying that he was going to make him a great nation. And of course, the reason God needed a nation was because he wanted to bring the Messiah in, and there needed to be that protection around this line that was going to come down to the Messiah. Uh, and God also wanted to give us not just the word made flesh, but the written word. And of course, Israel have given us the written word of God. Uh, so God used this nation, Abraham's family, who we know as Israel, uh, as such an incredible and as such a pivotal part of his overall plan. And this is why Israel is still important today. Uh, we see so much of uh, this anti-Semitism in the world that doesn't actually make any sense if you think about it, uh, unless you look at it with a biblical worldview and uh, mindset. And obviously then we see Isaac, Jacob, uh, and then we've been studying a lot of looking at Joseph. And Jacob now has made this trip down to uh, Egypt, apprehensive, but believing, of course, that the Lord is, is using this for his purposes. The Lord has already said, and we saw it last week, that God is going to be with Jacob and lead him in. And then we're going to just round out with these last few chapters, which are, are amazing. We'll, we'll, we'll jump into them in a second. But let's just bow our hearts and ask the Lord to just open his word to us this morning. Father, we do thank you for all that you've revealed to us already through this incredible book. Uh, Father, we just ask this morning that you open our understanding. Lord, give us ears to hear, we pray. Uh, and Father, not just in the natural sense that we would hear the things that are said, but that, Lord, spiritually we would receive them. Uh, the Lord, that they would be as manna, Lord, feeding our spirits, that we would grow. Um, so, Lord, we just pray you bless this time, uh, that we would grow together in knowledge and grace. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, of course, with the Bible, um, we've said a number of times these things before, but the Bible truly is an integrated message system. And we see Jesus throughout Scripture, not just in the New Testament, but throughout the Old Testament. In John 5, 39, Jesus himself said, Search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. Jesus says that the Scripture, that the Word of God, the Bible, speaks of him. And it does so on every page, at every level. In Hebrews 10, quoting and from Psalms, then said I, lo, I come in the volume of the book, it is written of me to do thy will, O God. 
The whole volume of the book, he's speaking of Jesus. It's like a jigsaw in a sense. And of course, you know, I encourage people always try and get a good idea of the framework. Whenever you're doing a jigsaw puzzle, you start with the framework, don't you? You do the edge pieces first. And then you start to fill it in. And when you fill in all the pieces of scripture, you get a wonderful picture of Jesus. But every, every piece in itself also points to Jesus in some way or another. In Colossians, Paul said, don't let anybody judge you in regard to the things you eat or drink or in respect of the feast days, holy days, or the new moon or Sabbath days. And he says, which are a shadow of things to come. They're just pointing forward to something else. He says, but the body or the substance of all of those things is Christ. So all the feasts and the holy days and the Sabbaths and all those things we find written in Scripture, they're all just pointing to Jesus. In Hebrews chapter 8, picking up verse 4, it says, Seeing then that there are priests that offer gifts according to the law, and notice this, who serve unto the example and shadow of heavenly things. So all the things that the priests did, and we read about particularly in Leviticus and so on, the sacrifices and the offerings, they weren't the first time those things have been done. There's a heavenly example of these things, or a heavenly reality of which they are a copy. Okay, there's a shadow of heavenly things. This is as Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle. For seeing, saith he, that thou make all things according to the pattern showed thee in the mount. So Moses made all the things for the tabernacle and everything else according to the blueprint of the things that already existed in heaven. What Moses had with the tabernacle was just a replica of what already exists in heaven. And all of those things point to and speak of Jesus in one way or another. In Hosea, chapter 12, verse 10, the Lord says there through Hosea, See, I've spoken by the prophets, and I've multiplied visions and used similitudes by the ministry of the prophets. Things that represent, that are analogous to, that lead us to see something bigger than they are themselves. And we see this throughout Scripture. Now, the reason I'm starting with this this morning is because when we look at Joseph, we see in so many ways that he is a type of Jesus. Now, I'm not going to go through all of these. I'm going to leave them in the notes because you can look at these and go through yourself. But, of course, Joseph was a shepherd of sheep. So was Jesus. Jesus, of course, is that good shepherd. You know, both Joseph and Jesus had distinctive clothing. I'm just going to go through all of these because there's just so many of them. Uh, hatred of his brethren, uh, again, in regard to character, the words, the sovereignty prophesied. Uh, again, this will be in the notes. This will go up on the web. So you can look through these and look at the references and see the incredible parallels. Both Jesus and Joseph were conspired against. People didn't believe their words, uh, insulted and stripped of their, their garments, cast into a pit and so on. Um, with both Joseph and Jesus tempted and yet they didn't fall into sin. Falsely accused, there was no defense that was presented for either Joseph or Jesus, uh, again cast into prison without a verdict. Uh, even though they were innocent, they both suffered. Jesus uh, was numbered with the sinners, as was Joseph in that context in the, the, the prison. And notice that Joseph was sentenced with two others, just as Jesus was. And again, gave good news to one of them, just as Jesus did on the cross. One was restored and one was judged. Uh, Jesus, of course, and Joseph, both a, a revealer of secrets, of divine things, and so on. Uh, Joseph ends up second to the highest power. Of course, Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. Both of them, Jesus and Joseph, would take a Gentile bride. Both started their ministry when they were around 30 years of age. And they both give this bread 
and so on. So you see a lot of examples, lots of ways that you just see God working through this. And uh, we'll talk more uh, about uh, maybe some of the things that are drawn from this in a while. But as you can see, there's just loads of these examples. There's a list, uh, Chuck Misler has got a list of over a hundred ways that Joseph uh, is a type or foreshadowing of Jesus. You know, you can't look at these things and conclude that, that the Bible is some random thing written by people. You know, this is God's word given to us, which all tell this story and this, this beautiful testimony of Jesus Christ. Well, with that, let's jump into chapter 48 because there's so much here that we want to try and cover this morning. And I just hope that uh, the Lord just opens our, our, our ears to these things because there's a real challenge, I think, in this as we look at this this morning. So verse 1 of chapter 48, it came to pass after these things. So all of this moving to Egypt and everything that's taken place, Jacob going and seeing Pharaoh and blessing him and so on. It came to pass after these things that one told Joseph, behold, thy father is sick. Joseph, of course, very busy with the affairs of state, second most important man in the world, really, at this time. I mean, Pharaoh, really the the world power, and Joseph, his right-hand man. So Joseph, no doubt, very busy. But somebody comes and, and tells Joseph, Behold, thy father is sick. And he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. Joseph says, Come on, let's go and see Grandad. Grandad's not well. And one told Jacob and said, Behold, thy son Joseph cometh unto thee. Now, I want to make it clear at this point that Jacob doesn't realize initially, and you'll see this come out of the text, that the two individuals with him are Joseph's sons. Bear in mind that being Joseph's sons, they wouldn't have been probably dressed as Israelites or Canaanites as they had come from Canaan. Um, they'd have been dressed as Egyptians. They'd have been growing up in Joseph's house, in, in the place where Joseph dwelled, and no doubt they were already at this time Joseph, I believe, somewhere around about 57 years old, and these boys somewhere in their early 20s. But they would have no doubt already been starting to help dad in some of the, the jobs and the, the things that needed to be done, and already becoming quite influential. And so Jacob doesn't realize that these two individuals come in looking like Egyptians are actually Joseph's sons. So the first thing we find is that as Joseph comes in, Israel strengthens himself and sat upon his bed. So he's very weak, he's just about to die, but he just musters enough strength just to sit up, and now he wants to speak to Joseph. And Jacob said unto Joseph, God Almighty appeared unto me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me, and said unto me, Behold, I will make thee fruitful and will multiply thee, and I will make of thee a multitude of people, and I will give this land to thy seed after thee for an everlasting possession. Now, Jacob really intent on impressing upon Joseph the promise that had been given to Abraham, that had been passed down and then reiterated to Isaac, that had been passed down and God reiterated this also to Jacob, that God was giving them the land of Canaan. And just as Jacob's about to die, he makes it so clear to Joseph, don't forget this promise. Don't forget who you are. Don't forget the calling upon our family. And notice also that Jacob acknowledges that God has been with him. That God has allowed all of these things. That God had said to him he was going to make him a multitude of people. And of course, Jacob now looking at his family. Already we saw last week this family of 70 or so that came down into Egypt. 
if you include the, the sons' wives as we looked at that, there's 75 that Stephen refers to in the book of Acts, chapter 7. But now there's this multitude of people already. But of course, it will go way beyond this. When they eventually leave, there'll be somewhere over 2 million souls leaving Egypt. And again, Jacob making it clear that God had said that I'll give this land to thy seed. Jacob saying to Joseph, that's you. That land is going to be your land. This is going to have such an impression upon Joseph that when Joseph himself dies, and Lord willing, we'll see that next week at the conclusion of the book, that Joseph tells the children of Israel, the nation that's growing at this point, when you go back to this land, take my bones with you. And then for 40 years, they're carrying Joseph's bones in a box around the desert until finally they go into the promised land and they bury him uh, in the land in the portion at Shechem. But now verse 5, it says, Thy two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, now bear in mind that he doesn't realize that these two characters standing next to Joseph seemingly are Ephraim and Manasseh. So he's not saying this just because they're there. This is something that is led in his heart of the Holy Spirit seemingly. Because he says, These two boys which were born unto thee in the land of Egypt before I came unto thee in Egypt are mine. He says, I'm going to adopt them. I'm going to take them as my own children. And he says, as Reuben and Simeon, they should be mine. And remember, Reuben was Jacob's firstborn. And then Simeon next. So Jacob's saying, just as they were my firstborn children, and these are your firstborn children, I'm going to take them as my own children. I'm going to adopt them as my own sons. They will be equal, in a sense, with you and all the, the brothers. But there's a reason that the Lord is doing this through Jacob at this point. As I said, Joseph is now 57. He's the 11th eldest in this line. But Jacob clearly, because if you remember, Joseph was the son of Rachel, the wife that Jacob loved from the start. Jacob wants to give the birthright to Joseph. Typically, the birthright would be that double blessing, that double portion. We talked about this a number of times in Scripture. And we see it in uh, Psalm 119, the beginning of Psalm 119. There's two blessings that are pronounced. It's a double blessing, a double portion that God wants to give us as his children. That's what we get to inherit. We become, as it were, the sons of God. As, uh, people, sadly, sometimes mistranslate that portion in First John. Behold what manner of love the Father has poured upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Some translate it children, so it's you know, more politically correct and things, and nobody gets offended. But that's, that's missing the point, because the whole point is that we become as sons, as that firstborn son. We, we inherit everything. So Jacob wants to give this birth right now to Joseph, that double portion. Now, partly, no doubt, is because Jacob sees Joseph, sees his position, sees what the Lord has done through him and with him, and recognizes now that Joseph is going to have the responsibility of caring for the family. Once Jacob goes off the scene, although the other brothers, certainly the rest of them are all older, another ten are older than Joseph, Joseph's in this position of authority already. Joseph obviously had fulfilled that duty with his brothers already. We've seen that. Jacob no doubt wanted more children of Rachel, but we know that she died in childbirth, giving birth to Benjamin. And so as a result of this, Jacob now adopts these boys, as I say, as his own. 
But then Jacob says, And thy issue which thou beget after them shall be thine. If you have any more children, they'll be yours. And it shall be called after your name. The name of their brethren and their inheritance. And as for me, he says, When I came from Paran, Rachel, your mum, died by me in the land of Canaan in the way, when yet there was a little way to come unto Ephrath, that's near Bethlehem. And I buried her there in the way of Ephrath, the same is Bethlehem. And behold, Jacob's sons, oh, sorry, um, and Israel beheld Jacob's sons and said, Who are these? So maybe thinking that these two Egyptians have just come along with Joseph, thinking it's unusual that they've not walked out and left us to have this private conversation. Who are these people still standing here? At which point, Joseph says unto his father, They are my sons, whom God has given me in his place. And Jacob says, and he said, Bring them, I pray, unto me. I will bless them. Let's, let's do this right now. Now we're told, verse 10, Now the eyes of Israel were dim for age, so that he could not see. So he didn't recognize them. He didn't know who they were. He just knew that they were there. But now he's been told by Joseph who these boys are. And he says, right, let's pray. And he brought them near unto him, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said unto Joseph, I had not thought to see thy face. And lo, God has shown me thy seed, also thy seed. You know, I, I didn't think I'd ever get to see you again, Joseph. But not only has God allowed me to see you, but your, my, my grandkids, your, your sons. And Joseph brought them out from between his knees, they're kind of standing obviously in front of him somehow. And he, brought, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand, and brought them near unto him. Now, what Jacob does at this point is crosses his hands over so that he takes in the opposite hands to the way that Joseph was trying to give these sons to, to pray for them. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on Ephraim's head, who was the younger. And his left hand upon Manasseh's head, guiding his hands, wittingly. In other words, he knew what he was doing. For Manasseh was the firstborn. So now he's putting his right hand upon the youngest, his left hand upon the eldest. It's the wrong way round from from etiquette point of view for doing what he's trying to do here. And he blessed Joseph and said, God, for whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac did walk, and notice this, the God which fed me all my life long unto this day. You know, he recognizes as he looks back over his life that God had been there the whole time. You know, you've heard, I'm sure, that kind of footprints poem. You know, and there's only one set of footprints and, and so on. You know, when we get to the end, we'll look back. We, we sang that song this morning. I love the, the sentiment, the words of that song. But when we finally get to the end, we will say it was worth it all. You know, all the trials, all the difficulties we've gone through. Jacob looks back now and he sees that God had led him the whole way. God had never abandoned him. God had fed him all my life long to this day. He says, the angel. Now notice this because we read a number of times in the Old Testament about the angel of the Lord. Well, Jacob clearly makes the statement here that this angel is God himself. And we see from the context in those situations that that's, that is the case. That, that it's a, a pre-incarnate incarnate appearance of God. Some refer to it, the, the word sometimes used is a Christophany. It's, it's an appearance of Jesus, a second person of the Trinity, before Jesus obviously came and was born as a human at Bethlehem. And we see a number of times in the Old Testament, God appear in human form. 
It says, the angel which redeemed me. That, that's the first time we read the word redemption in Scripture. Redeemed me from all evil. Effectively, Jacob's saying, God has purchased me back. He brought me back. You know, Jacob's had a, a checker past and done a number of things that probably he'd like to wipe off the list. But he says that God had brought him back. He redeemed me from all evil. He says, this is the God. The God that is able to go before me, to provide for me, that can redeem me. That's the God I'm praying will bless these lads. He says, and let my name be named on them. Let them be counted as my sons and the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. Which is exactly what's happened, because that's where they grew, in the midst of the earth, in Israel. But now Joseph obviously observed this sort of mixing up of the hands thing, and, and when Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand upon the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. And he held up his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's head unto Manasseh's head. So he tries to get Jacob's hands, and he tries to move it, and Jacob says, no, I'm not going to let it go. And Joseph said unto his father, not so, my father, for this is the firstborn. You, you've got it wrong, Dad. That's the wrong way round. Put thy right hand upon his head. And his father refused and said, I know it, my son. I know it. Now, it may be that Jacob just like, I know, I know. Just, just leave me. I know what I'm doing. I don't think that's what he's saying here. Because it is, in the text, it is repeated here. I know it, my son. I know. I think there's an there's a element here where Jacob is thinking of his own eldest son, his own firstborn. You see, what he's saying is that the secondborn son of Joseph is going to become greater, and he's going to say this in a second. Realizing what his own firstborn son missed out on. And I think there's just a twinge of sadness there for Jacob. That he's, he's making this declaration, this prayer, and saying, actually, your firstborn son is not going to take all that he could have taken. He's not going to inherit what he could have inherited. And we're going to see that with the way that the land falls out, which who, who gets the different portions of the land. We'll look at that in a moment. You know, there's a lesson in all of these things. As we look at these sons this morning, we're going to go and look at the, the other sons in a moment. That, in essence, they're all saved. They all get to be provided for in Egypt. But the blessings vary. And I don't believe the blessings vary because of anything other than the individuals themselves taking hold of that which is available to them. Come back to that in, in a moment. We told and he, his father refused and said, I know it, my son, I know it. And he also shall be a people and he also shall be great. But truly his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his seed shall become a multitude of nations. And he blessed them that day, saying, In thee shall Israel bless, saying, God, make thee as Ephraim and as Manasseh. And he said, Ephraim before Manasseh. Interesting that, that use of the name Israel there, verse 20. So, verse 20. And he blessed them that day, saying, In thee shall Israel bless thee. So that, that phrase, Israel bless thee, is not speaking of himself, but of the nation. See, now we start to find the name Israel being used, not of Jacob exclusively, but of the people. And it's at this time, the people become known as Israel. 
rather than just the children of Israel being Jacob. Now, as I said, Joseph thinks this is a mistake, but of course Jacob shows that what he's doing is being led of the Lord. Manasseh, we find, uh, given one of the largest portions of the promised land, but only half the tribe go in across the Jordan. The other half are one of the first to be taken into captivity. They're split between the River Jordan. Some of them stay on the east bank and some cross over to the west. And they get a large portion of land. But they don't obtain to the stature, in a sense, of Ephraim. And Ephraim, conversely, actually get one of the smallest portions of the land. But from them come a number of important leaders, including, of course, Joshua it's where the ark resides. It's the first capital, Shiloh, uh, of Israel, uh, will be in this particular area. It's where Samuel came from, of where he was based as well. Uh, at this point, it's, of course, you remember the situation with Eli, uh, and uh, they go up to, to Shiloh. Uh, this is all in the territory of Ephraim. Ephraim become very much synonymous with the northern kingdom. And Israel said unto Joseph, Behold, I die. But God shall be with you and bring you again unto the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to thee one portion above thy brethren. These two portions, this blessing for Manasseh and for Ephraim, which I took out of the hand of the Amorite with my sword and with my bow. Now that's an interesting statement because we don't have any record of that. And some commentators, some scholars think that this is a prophetic comment, looking forward to the time of of Joshua, when they go in and conquer the land and so on. But... Either way, the Lord is speaking through Jacob here and saying that this double portion is going to fall upon Joseph in the form of his two children receiving this blessing. So we go on into chapter 49, and now we see the rest of the sons being brought. Jacob called unto his sons and said, Gather yourselves together, that I may tell you that which shall befall you in the last days. That's the first time of 33 times that phrase is going to occur idea of last days and this does span history it's an incredible prophetic utterance that is given here by jacob again right at the end of his life acknowledging that it's god that has been in control the whole way and right at the end of his life the holy spirit using him to speak to his sons to gather yourselves together and hear you sons of jacob and hearken unto israel your father it's okay boys settle down listen your dad wants to speak to you and so the first up, of course, is his eldest, firstborn. Reuben, thou art my firstborn, my might, and the beginning of my strength. The excellency of dignity and the excellency of power. At this point, Reuben is saying, looking, come on, boys, this is me. Very proud, no doubt, that his dad is, before all of his brothers, saying, yeah, you're my firstborn. You're my might, the beginning of my strength. The excellency of dignity and the excellency of power. And it kind of really goes down here very quickly when Jacob carries on and says, unstable as water. That's, the expression there really is, is like boiling water. Uh, you know, that's the idea of the unstableness there. It's hot, it's boiling water, it's not stable, it's not still. And then Jacob says these cutting words, thou shall not exile. What a cunning thing for a father to say to a son. And I think Jacob is as grieved by this as Reuben would have been in hearing it. Reuben knowing full well what's about to come at this point. And Jacob says this, and bear in mind, this may be the first time some of the brothers hear about this. But Jacob now recounts and says, Because 
thou wentest up to thy father's bed, then defiedest thou it. He went up to my couch. And what we find is that after Rachel died, her handmaid, Bilhah, then, and Reuben sleep together. Of course, Jacob at that time doesn't do anything about it. It lets it go. But it was noted. It was a real defilement. It should never have happened. Now, it's interesting. Was it just Reuben? Possibly not, because once Rachel dies, in a sense, that sense of accountability for Bilhah is removed from her. Because she was Rachel's handmaid. So she was like subservient to Rachel. When Rachel's no longer on the scene, she's kind of free from that sense of authority upon her life. So it might not be just Reuben here. It may have been the Bilhar, who obviously would have been younger, and Reuben, who was the eldest son, they may have been very similar in age. There may have been something going on for a while. There may have been a number of times they noticed each other. But what a shame that Reuben allowed that to go anywhere at all. You know, look at the contrast with Joseph when Joseph gets to Egypt and, of course, the advances by Potiphar's wife. Joseph just flees. He doesn't allow any, any opportunity for sin. That's what we read in the book of Romans. Paul says, don't make any occasion for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. You give the flesh half a chance and it will take every opportunity it can. Reuben losing out. An incredible blessing here because of a moment of passion. Again, because that, that idea again, unstable of water, that boiling, just speaks very much of that kind of passion. It's so sad. You know, what we're going to see here is very much the judgment seat of Jacob. If you've got your Bibles, just turn with me to Second Corinthians. Second Corinthians chapter 5 speaks of a, a day that is coming. Where in a sense, all of us are going to be in exactly this kind of situation. This is why this is so relevant to us this morning. Because the father had called his children to effectively reward them or not, depending on how they had lived. And in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10, we read this. It says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that everyone may receive the things done in his body according that he has done, whether it be good or bad. Reuben's not disinherited as a son, but he loses the blessing. You know, John in um, 2 John speaks about, see that you, you receive a full reward. You know, don't lose those things you've worked for. Scripture is very clear that there are rewards, there's inheritance that will be granted. But you know, we can blow it because of the way we live our lives. You know, and, and Reuben is a, a real great lesson here. Somebody who the firstborn should have inherited this, this blessing, this double portion, ends up being told, you're not going to excel. He allowed the lusts of the flesh to take over and sadly too many today are in that position. You know, particularly men, it's not exclusively men, but men struggle with lust. You know, it's not something we often talk about, but it's a real problem. And sadly, it's a real problem within the church at large. There's horrifying statistics. The number of pastors that have admitted to 
looking at or being involved in pornography. You know, it, it doesn't change salvation. Because salvation is based upon the completed work of Christ. But it does make people ineffective. Reuben here, great example. He's not going to accept everything, everything he's doing. He's not going to prosper. Contrast that with Psalm 1, where it speaks about people that are not getting drawn into the things of the world in any way, shape, or form. Not sitting in the seat of the scornful, which is where that ends up. It speaks about the blessed man in Psalm 1, and it says that everything he does shall prosper. Exactly the opposite of Reuben. You know, there is, unfortunately, within the church a culture where sins are often covered over and people don't talk about things. And, you know, I, I'm not one for the, even confessing your sins to each other. That's not what, what James says. It talks about confessing your faults, not your sins. Not, we're not into confessionals. But at the same time, you should be willing to go to a brother or a sister and say, pray for me, help me. I'm struggling with something. And be accountable to each other. You know, that, that individual could then come back a, a week or a few days later and say, how are you getting on? I've been praying for you this week. You know, and we all stumble, we all fall, and we all need each other. That's why the Lord has given us the body. And Paul makes it very clear, again in Corinthians, that, you know, that there's not one sin that, that is unique to you that nobody else suffers from. We all struggle with the same kind of issues and the same kind of problems. It could be temper, it could be anger. Another problem typically the men tend to struggle from. Jesus addresses this, of course, in uh, Matthew 5, speaking of both of these things, Matthew 5 and 6, actually. You know, he speaks about if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. If your hand causes you to sin, chop it off. You can try doing that, but you'll realize that with no eyes and no hands, you can still lust, you can still be angry. The problem is the heart. That's the issue. That's what Jesus is driving at. And we're all in this situation. I just want to just mention this this morning, drive this home, because it's such a shame that we have people like Reuben in the church that could inherit blessing and don't. God has so much for us. As I said a few weeks ago, I really believe that the the God's call on us as a church this year is holiness. You know, and one of the fruits of holiness is seeing people saved. But that's not going to happen if we allow sin to run rampant in our lives, unchecked. These I'm going to leave in the, the notes again, just some information for you. We know again, firstborn, as we've said already, of Jacob by Leah. The name kind of connected with that phrase, the, the Lord has looked upon my affliction. Interestingly, it's the tribe of Reuben that is involved in the rebellion in the wilderness in number 16. Interesting, isn't it? That nothing good came as a result. Once again, sadly, they choose a settlement on the east side of Jordan. We'll show you in a second. Uh, when we see that numbering in the book of Numbers, they actually decrease from 46,500 down to just under 44,000. Most of the other tribes increase during that time. They decrease. There's no judge, prophet, or prince that comes from that tribe. That's what sin does. That's what those moments of passion, that's what that, that time when the flesh just reaches out and just takes hold of your, your mind and your heart. That's what it can do to the rest of your life. Don't let that be your life this morning. If you need prayer, 
Come speak to us. We will pray with you. We will pray continually. As a result, Reuben, in a sense, forfeits all of these things. The rights of the firstborn go to Joseph. The privileges of the priest goes to Levi, ultimately. And the, the kingly rights eventually go to Judah. So we see that the portion of inheritance is over this side and the bottom, alongside the Dead Sea. That's the area that Reuben inherited. Well, then we get Simeon and Levi, and these are grouped together. We read Simeon and Levi. Now, of course, Reuben's just had this kind of telling off, in a sense, from Dad. And now Simeon and Levi are probably not particularly pleased that they're next in line. But because they're next in line in terms of age, they are, and they kind of step forward. Simeon and Levi are brethren. We've got instruments of cruelty are in their habitations. Remember, of course, the situation with the sons of Shechem, where they deceived them because of the the way that they defiled their sister Dinah. And they led to the wiping out of that city. Oh, my soul, come not into their secret, unto their assembly, mine honor. Um, be not thou united, for in their anger they slew a man, and in their self-will they digged down a wall. Cursed be their anger, for it was fierce, and their wrath, for it was cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Now, prophetically, this is played out because Simeon get this little portion of land down the bottom, but ultimately get absorbed by Judah and by Benjamin in, in the whole of that region. You don't hear anything of Simeon really going forward. Of course, Levi are not given any land. They're divided in Israel because of Levi becoming a priestly tribe. We'll come back to that in just a second. Again, Simeon, the second son of Jacob by Leah. Again, that act of vengeance we mentioned just a moment ago. Uh, it's interesting that Simeon is the one that was detained by Joseph, uh, seemingly a bit of a ringleader in getting Joseph uh, taken off to Egypt in the first place. Um, but, uh, uh, yeah, There's, um, we do read in First Chronicles that there were 13 Simeonite princes in the days of Hezekiah. Um, but Moses later in Deuteronomy won't pronounce any blessing uh, upon the tribe. And Levi, on the other hand, is an example of somebody who starts off not particularly good, but actually turns things around. Because if you remember back in Exodus, when the situation with the golden calf, when Moses comes down the mountain, he says, who is on the Lord's side? And the tribe of Levi stepped forward and said, we are. And they go through the camp and they kill those that are getting involved in this idolatrous Barkle that's going on there, the base of Sinai, Mount Sinai. Now, as a result of that, the Lord will single them out and say, In that case, you will be, rather than the firstborn of every family, I will take the Levites, the tribe of Levi, as my inheritance. And they become the priestly tribe. And they, they, they do all sorts of things we read about um, through the rest of the Old Testament, particularly the, the book of book of Leviticus details a lot of their responsibilities and roles and so on. They were exempt from military duty and so on. Uh, they were teachers and uh, various other responsibilities. Now we get to Judah. Judah thou art. Now Judah may be thinking at this point, because you remember chapter 38 of Genesis, a very sordid chapter indeed. Judah may have been thinking that it's not going to be good for me. I'm not looking forward to what dad's got to say. So far, it's not sounding very good. Judah, thou art he... Whom thy brethren shall praise. The name Judah means praise. Thy hand shall be in the neck of thine enemies. Thy father's children shall bow down before thee. See, at this point, there's a hint even in these first few verses that the Lord is going to do something very special through Judah. And of course, 
It is because it's the tribe through whom the Messiah will come. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, thou art gone up. He stooped down, he couched as a lion, as an old lion. Who shall rouse him up? And then we're told, verse 10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. We'll talk about the word in a moment. And unto him shall be the gathering of the people, binding his foal unto a vine and his ass's colt unto the choice vine. He washed his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes. His eyes shall be red with wine and his teeth white with milk. It's pronouncing a blessing over Judah. Now, this idea of the scepter was the, a, the tribal identity, um, but it was the idea that they could enforce the laws, particularly later on when we get to the time of Moses and the Mosaic laws. Shiloh, interestingly, the, the name uh, means to whom it belongs, or it's a reference to the Messiah. It has this idea of secure, tranquil, that the word is very closely related to the Jewish the Hebrew word for peace, shalom. Of course, Shiloh becoming the, the place geographically in Israel where the first tabernacle is set up and established in the land. Now, interestingly, back in the days of Herod the Great, 4 BC, this is before we, uh, we get to just the beginning of the New Testament period, this individual was an evil man. He dies. And as a result, Rome then appoints this successor, um, Herod Archelaus. Uh, again, there's also history of things going on around this time. Now, around this time, we find that then Caponius also is appointed uh, procurator in Israel at this point, and he's given the right to commit capital punishment, but that right is taken away from Israel at that point. Up until then, Israel had had the right to, if they wanted to, um, put people to death for various crimes or whatever. But that power, that authority was taken away from Israel around about 6 or 7 AD. Now, what's interesting is that at this time, the high priest, apparently, according to the Jerusalem uh, Talmud, walked through the streets of Jerusalem, weeping. And when people asked why he was weeping, he said, because the scepter, the power, the authority has departed from Judah, and the Messiah has not yet come. What he didn't realize was that up in Nazareth, in a woodwork shop, working with his stepdad, the Messiah had come. You see, Scripture wasn't broken. This, this priest thought that the Scripture had been broken because they weren't aware the Messiah had come. Again, more details about Judah there. But, of course, the most important thing from the tribe of Judah is, of course, that it will come down to the family of David and then on to the Messiah. Judah, the whole of that area, encompassing where Simeon is down the, the bottom there of the map, bordering onto the Mediterranean Sea. We then go on to Zebulun. Zebulun shall dwell at the haven of the sea, and he shall be for a haven of ships, and his border shall be unto Zidon. Not a lot is said about Zebulun. We know that uh, it's the northern area, Galilee, to the north of Isica. We'll see where they fall out around them in a moment. According to the prophecy we find in Isaiah, it was this part of Galilee 
uh, that was going to enjoy the, the Lord's ministry, which is exactly what we see fulfilled uh, from Matthew or in Matthew's gospel and, and so on. So we see uh, Zebulim right at the top there. You can see uh, almost onto the, the coast. Then we go to Issachar, who's a strong ass couching down between two burdens. And he saw the rest was good and the land, and that it was pleasant. And he bowed his shoulder to bear and became a servant unto tribute. Jacob's ninth son by Leah here, name means my hire. Uh, again, this uh, blessing pronounced by Jacob corresponds with the kind of blessing that Moses gives. It's interesting when you compare these two portions in Deuteronomy 33 and this bit we're looking at now. Only Judah and Dan were stronger uh, in terms of the numerics of uh, how many people. And they have this area which includes the Jezreel Valley, which is arguably one of the richest portions of the land. This beautiful valley that runs down the center uh, of Israel. You can see uh, just, just under Zebulun there on the top. We'll go to Dan next. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a servant by the way, an adder in the path that bites the horse heels so that the rider shall fall backward. I have waited for thy salvation, O Lord. This is a strange kind of prophecy. And again, commentators are not always clear or sure what this is referring to. But it's interesting to, to look at the facts because what we know about Dan is that he wasn't happy or the, the senators of Dan were not happy with the portion given to them. They said it's not enough. As a result, they take a portion right at the top of Israel. Hence, we get this re- reference often from Dan to Beersheba, from the north to the south of the land. Dan was the tribe that led the nation of Israel, the northern kingdom, into idolatry. Is there a reference here that, that the devil is using them? Dan shall be a serpent, by the way. Yeah, obviously, serpents, you can't help but think of references to Satan through Scripture. Well, certainly Dan, a number of times, is spoken of in a, a derogatory sense. Interestingly, Dan is omitted from that list in Revelation when we have the 12 tribes listed. Dan's name is not in that list. Just as a, an aside with that whole not being happy with your portion. You know, God has given to each of us boundaries for our lives. Instructions as to how we should live. Of course, the world says, why can't I have this? Why can't I do that? Well, God has said, because I know better. And God has given us boundaries. The moment we step outside of those boundaries, it will lead to idolatry. Dan is the, the classic case of this, but we see it in so many examples in our own lives. If you step outside the boundaries that God has given you for your life, it will lead to sin, to idolatry. Of course, one of the most famous uh, descendants of Dan is Samson. Um, Dan, that little strip you can see almost in the middle there. And then we're told of Gad. Gad, a troop shall overcome him, but he shall overcome at last. A reference seemingly to the millennial kingdom. So there's a real wide stretch here in terms of the prophetic side of things. Uh, This is Gad being one of the sons of Zilpah, Leah's handmaid. Uh, and so on. Um, they were quite a violent tribe, uh, historically. They were strong men, mighty, we're told in Chronicles, uh, and so on. Interestingly, Elijah comes from this tribe as well. So, we go on, uh, look at Asher. Out of Asher, his bread shall be fat, and he shall yield royal dainties. And they settled in the northern parts, um, close to Mount Lebanon, to the Mediterranean. Um, the idea of royal dainties is that they ended up providing workmen and materials uh, that were used by David and obviously 
to uh, acquire all the uh, materials necessary for building of the temple. They also keep the Passover under Hezekiah in contrast to some of the other tribes in the land. And of course, we have that reference in the New Testament to Anna and this prophetess uh, when Jesus is born and taken up to the temple, uh, that she's of this tribe as well. So, uh, so you see there, uh, Asher right at the top, uh, you see there. Naphtali is a hind let loose. He gives godly, goodly words. Uh, fifth son of Jacob, uh, and so on. Again, not a huge amount, specifically, to say other than uh, Deborah sang the song of the people of Naphtali uh, because they risked their lives on the heights on the field. That's like in, in Judges 5, we see that. Um, so right at the top there, uh, in between uh, Asher and bordering onto that top portion of the land. And then we come to Joseph. Joseph is a fruitful bough, even a fruitful bough by a whale whose branches run over the wall. This is a kind of a, a lovely picture of a, a plant that uh, is just abounding. Um, you know, you, you find in the Middle East, you get various plants, and suddenly you see one that's tall, that's really growing, that's fruitful. It's simply because it's, it's hit, as its roots have gone down, it's hit water. And that's the idea with Joseph, a fruitful bough. Even a fruitful bough by a, a well whose branches run over the wall. The archers have sorely grieved him and shot at him and hated him. Now, it seems to be speaking um, in terms of the way that Joseph was so sorely treated by his brothers and by others. But his bow, a bow in his strength, he didn't give up. And the arms of his hands were made strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. From thence is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. You know, a great statement here, Jacob. Again, getting back to this this son that he's loved so much. Um, but saying, you know, through all of those things, he wasn't weak and he didn't give up. He never turned away from God or gave up. But his hands were made strong by the mighty God of Jacob. Even by the God of thy father who shall help thee. And by the almighty who shall bless with thee, blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that lieth under, blessings of the breast and of the womb, thy blessings of the, thy father have prevailed above the blessing of my progenitors unto the utmost bound of the everlasting hills. They shall be on the head of Joseph and on the crown of the head of him that was separate from his brethren. And just such a lovely um, blessing to kind of end uh, for Joseph to, to have this set in front of all his brothers, who obviously had been the ones responsible. Again, all this information we know, uh, we've talked about this already, the ways that he was the type of Christ and everything else. Just, uh, you know, of all the blessings that Joseph had, isn't that one of the greatest? That, you know, in God's word forever now, Joseph is seen as being a type of Jesus Christ. What a lovely thing for Joseph for eternity to know that his life just points people to Jesus. Of course, then Manasseh is the eldest son of, of Joseph, uh, and uh, Asenath, this uh, Egyptian bride, uh, as we've said already, we looked at this earlier, adopted. And given these portions that we saw on the map a moment ago, and then Ephraim, uh, the second. And then finally, Benjamin. Benjamin shall raven as a wolf in the morning, he shall devour thy prey, and at night he shall divide the spoil. Now, Benjamin, interesting, uh, checkered kind of uh, history as we go forward into the rest of the Old Testament. There's some really dark periods in Benjamin's history. 
Um, ferocious as a wolf. I mean, you've only got to read Judges 19 to get some of the idea of, of these things. But there's some real heroes that come out of the tribe of Benjamin. Of course, Ehud, who delivers Israel in the book of Judges, uh, defeats the Moabites. Saul, of course, the first king, comes from the tribe of Benjamin, as does Esther. And of course, in the New Testament, so does the Apostle Paul, all come from this tribe. So that completes our uh, map, in a sense, of where these tribes inhabit. Now, this leads us to the question of kind of predestination and free will, because Jacob is speaking over them at this point, and they inhabit these areas. When Moses speaks over them, the land that they're granted is exactly the same as Jacob effectively is pronouncing now, in terms of the, the type of histories that they're, or the futures they're going to have. Now, does that mean they didn't get any choice? Well, no, not at all. You see, God is outside of time. God knows the end from the beginning. Yeah, some people get hung up on this in terms of, well, does that mean that our future is predestined, that God has already decided? Well, yes, he has. But because he knows our responses. It's only because God is outside of time. Our trouble is that we are inside of time. It's hard for us to sometimes think of things from God's perspective. But every one of us has free will. Every one of us has the opportunity to choose. All of these sons of Jacob had the opportunity to choose how they would live their lives. This morning, each one of us has an opportunity to choose as believers how we live our lives before God. And the rewards will be according. All these are the 12 tribes of Israel. And this is it, and uh, sorry, and this is it that their father spoke unto them and blessed them. Everyone according to his blessing, he blessed them. And he charged them and said unto them, I am to be gathered unto my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, which is before Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field of Ephron the Hittite for a possession of a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah his wife, and there they buried Isaac and Rebekah his wife, and there I buried Leah. The purchase of the field and of the cave that is therein was from the children of Heth. And when Jacob had made an end of commanding his sons, he gathered up his feet into the bed and yielded up the ghost and was gathered unto his people. You know, this is his final goodbye. The struggle's over. The journey for Jacob is complete. And it's now for the next generation to go on and to look for those promises of God. Now, I've just left this in here as well. We talked about this, I think, earlier in uh, our study in Genesis. Um, but we see the 12 tribes listed uh, a number of times in Scripture. You see where they are in which books, Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, and so on. And every time we have a slightly different order, and it's interesting the way that the meaning of the names play out. Of course, that's the actual order, birth order, uh, that we find and the, na- the names associated with it, which interestingly tells the history of the nation of Israel, just in the meaning of their names as you look, which is incredible. And then in Revelation, the final listing of the names, you have the names in this order with the meaning of the names. Praise the Lord. He's looked on my affliction and granted good fortune. Happy am I. My wrestling has made me forget my sorrow. God hears me has joined me, purchased me, and exalted me by adding to me the son of his right hand. That is speaking, of course, of Jesus. What the whole book is all about anyway. And you just see how everything is pointing us to him. He's the author. He's the finisher of our faith. Our eyes need to be on him. Let's bow our hearts.
Well, Father, we thank you for this time this morning to look at these things. So, Father, we're just reminded of the opportunity each one of us has to live our lives for your glory. Father, your word tells us that we are not our own, that we were bought at a price, and therefore we should honor God with our body and with our spirits, which are the Lord's. So, Lord, help us to do just that. Help us to live our lives for you, not for the pleasures of the flesh, not like Reuben, Father. Help us not to be unstable like water, Lord, just driven by passion or by anger or by whatever, but just out of a desire to be holy and separated to you. Joseph was separated from his brethren, and Father, we see the blessings that were poured upon him. Father, help us to be like that. Help us to live lives for your glory. And Father, help us to be here to support and help and encourage each other. Lord, we all struggle with sin. As your word says, it is that sin which so easily ensnares us. So, Lord, help us to pray for each other. Help us to support each other, to encourage each other. But, Lord, may we together look unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. We ask it in his name. Amen. May God richly bless you through this coming week. Next week, Lord willing, we shall finish the book. Okay, God bless you.